Welcome to the Latter-day Freeman Podcast, a podcast dedicated to building a movement of Latter-day Saints united in defense of the principles of freedom and our inspired constitution. I am your host, Jacob Hibbard, and I'm joined this week by my good friend, good friend and fellow Freeman, Richie Angel. Richie, thanks so much for being with us tonight. Of course, love to be here. Uh, really excited to have Richie on. We're going to jumping into uh, a meaty topic, I guess you could say. One that called for, I believe, Richie's expertise. Uh, Richie just finished, uh, just graduated uh, with his JD, just took the bar, is waiting to hear back from the bar. And so we're going to have a, a lot of fun, I think, with this discussion, talking about constitutional law, statutory law, and applying the pillars to a timely topic. And the topic this week is President Biden's administration's uh, extension of the eviction moratorium. Uh, for those of you who don't know what I just said, last year during the pandemic, the Trump administration issued what's called a, an eviction moratorium. So that say you were renting from somebody, from a landlord during the pandemic and you lost your job or were no longer able to pay rent or weren't paying rent, normally you'd be able to be evicted by your landlord for failure to pay rent. Well, the Trump administration, through the CDC, issued an, a moratorium on that, meaning that people could not be evicted legally if they didn't pay their rent. And so that order was then set to expire on July 31st of this year. And as that date approached, there was a lot of pressure, and the Biden administration decided to extend that moratorium so that individuals who are not paying rent could still remain in their rental uh, homes or apartments or whatever it might be. So this issue though, bring, brings up a lot of constitutional and legal issues, a lot of different questions. It's timely, there's a lot of talk about whether this will continue, the legality of it. And to kind of set the stage, um, I have a quote from President Biden that we're gonna play for you, where he kind of set the stage himself over some of the issues that are at play here. Is about to announce a new partial eviction moratorium, COVID related. Can you tell us any more about that? And are you sure it's going to pass Supreme Court muster? The answer is twofold. One, I've sought out constitutional scholars to determine what is the best possibility that would come from executive action or the CDC's judgment. What could they do that was most likely to pass muster? constitutionally. The bulk of the constitutional scholarship says that it's not likely to pass constitutional muster, number one. But there are several key scholars who think that it may, and it's worth the effort. But the present, you could not, the courts already ruled on the present eviction moratorium. So I think what you're going to see, and I, look, I want to make it clear. I told you I would not tell the Justice Department or the medical experts, the scientists, what they should say or do. So I don't want to get ahead. The CDC has to make this. I asked the CDC to go back and consider other options that may be available to them. You're going to hear from them what those other options are. I have been informed. They're about to make a judgment as to potential other options. Whether that option will pass constitutional 
measure with this administration, I can't tell you. I don't know. There are a few scholars who say it will and others who say it's not likely to. But at a minimum, by the time it gets litigated, it will probably give some additional time while we're getting that $45 billion out to people who are, in fact, behind in the rent and don't have the money. That's why it was passed in the, in, in the act that we passed in the beginning of my administration. And it went to the states. So that a little bit more context to that. And I probably should have added this before we played the quote. Um, the Biden administration was planning on sending out $45 billion to the states that would then would get distributed to people who need to pay rent or to landlords uh, to cover rent so that they wouldn't evict people. And these are some of the different options that they're looking at. But the book, bulk main point of President Biden's comment is, this is an ambiguous, ambiguous constitutional issue. It might be unconstitutional. It might, maybe, maybe it will. We do know that the current one is considered unconstitutional by the Supreme Court. And at the very least, maybe we'll be able to get you know, delay, this will be delayed enough that we'll still be able to help people until they make it invalid. So this is a complicated issue. And to start off our discussion, how do we look at this circumstance of an eviction moratorium from the perspective of the pillars, from the perspective of individual liberty, individual morality, limited government, free markets? I think you can make an argument that it applies to any of those four, but the biggest ones that I see are for limited government and for free markets, primarily limited government. Um, the question with you know limited government, as we've discussed before on that pillar, is not just that the government should be small, but that it should be limited in function to certain uh, powers and acts, which is what the Constitution seeks to do with its enumerated powers. And as we hear in the Declaration of Independence, the, the government should be limited to securing our rights. It should be restricted to protecting against the infringement of people's rights. So here, uh, with the eviction moratorium, we don't have any rights at stake for the tenants because there's no right to housing, uh, either in natural law or under the Constitution. Um, and on the flip side, the CDC is, in fact, violating the rights of homeowners and renters um, who do have a liberty interest here. So the so it completely flouts the limited government pillar. And then going to the free markets pillar, I know we have some constitutional stuff to, to jump into to uh, kind of support this um, later on. But as an initial principle, the CDC is just inserting themselves into the market here. Um, and we could argue, you know, what are the policy implications of that? You know, whether it would whether they're actually preventing a recovery um, or uh, anything like that following the, the pandemic turnaround or, or, you know, upside down kind of nature that we've had. Um, but it almost made me think of like a no tenant left behind policy that we're seeking here, which is uh, inserting themselves into the market for the sake of a few um, at the expense of the whole. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. I, I thought of those two pillars as well. Uh, and with limited government, securing our rights includes property rights. Property rights are vitally important right that are that limited government, that proper government is supposed to secure. James Madison, in an essay he wrote on property, said that government is instituted to protect property of every sort, as well that which lies in the various rights of individuals as that which the term particularly expresses. This being the end of government, that alone is a just government, which impartially secures to every man whatever is his own. So 
Madison makes it very clear that the proper role of government is to secure property rights. And then from an LDS perspective, President David O. McKay in General Conference in 1962 said, thus today, brethren, we are in danger of actually surrendering our personal and property rights. This development, if it does occur in full form, will be a sad tragedy for our people. We must recognize that property rights are essential to human liberty. So if we're going to believe in the proper role of government, if we're going to believe in liberty, we have to recognize that government has a role in securing private property. And as you articulated, when government says you can't evict someone from your private property or you will make a contract or agree to the certain terms with your property, that's violating that property, right? And also, like you mentioned with, with uh, contracts and free markets, it completely distorts the market. Government exists to secure our rights in an economic sphere by enforcing contracts, not forcing contracts. And, and that's what this, what this is essentially doing is it's forcing landowners to continue in agreements that they don't consent to, where one party has violated the terms of the contract by not paying. And we know that it is important that these kinds of transactions don't get enforced, that government enforces those contracts, but doesn't interfere in these kinds of arrangements. President McKay, again, uh, said that true liberty means to purchase what he wants to purchase and to sell what he wishes to sell without public interference. Selling a rental contract or rental agreement is that kind of liberty. That's part of true liberty. Me as a landowner, as a renter, being able to make those choices and this is a major public interference in those voluntary transactions. And, and I think you were, it was really good for you to point out that there isn't a right interest on the side of the tenant because their rights in the circumstance is completely defined by the contract that they entered in with the, the, in the rental agreement that they have violated by not paying their rent. So when we talk about rights, as you so clearly stated, we're looking at the, the rights of the landowner, of the property owner, and this is a complete this flies in the face of those principles that our country is founded on. Now, let's turn our attention, though, from the pillars to the Constitution and the constitutional issues at play. And I think this is where the meat of our discussion is going to rest, is what are the constitutional implications of this move by the Biden administration? Is this constitutional? Is it not? Um, as a recent graduate from law school, um, when you look at this circumstance from a constitutional law perspective, what are some of the issues that jump out to you immediately, Ruchi? Well, I don't think that I'm putting the cart before the horse when I say it's pretty clearly not constitutional. Um, we'll, we'll give some specifics to justify that. But I mean, Biden himself said it's probably not constitutional. The Supreme Court, even in allowing it to stand, said it's probably not constitutional. Um, it doesn't seem like there are many people of note who are taking the position that it is constitutional. Um, at best, we really have this kind of cynical attitude that uh, I don't care if it's constitutional, I'll just, you know, hopefully we can get some good outcomes in the meantime before the courts strike it down. Um, and so before we get into the specifics of the Constitution, I kind of wanted to point out a couple of principles that I think are at war here when it comes to the way we approach the Constitution. So one, and this is far from unique to Democrats or to Joe Biden, um, but it, it reminded me of something that George W. Bush said in, I believe, 2002 with the passage of the McCain-Feingold Act, which had to do with campaign uh, finance reform, where he signed it into law, despite uh, what he called, quote, reservations about the constitutionality of certain portions of that law. 
Um, so George W. Bush as well was saying, I don't really think this is constitutional, but we'll let the courts figure it out. Um, and so we kind of have that, that cynical take. It almost reminded me if I could use a gospel analogy, and maybe this isn't the greatest analogy, but, um, but say there's a certain behavior that you are pretty sure is not temple worthy. Um, but that doesn't mean you're going to stop going to the temple over it. In fact, you'll just wait until your next regularly scheduled temple recommend interview. And then you'll talk about it with your bishop, because in the meantime, even though maybe you're not living such a temple worthy life, you can get, you know, eke out some of those blessings of temple attendance in the meantime. That's just kind of, it, it feels like a dirty tactic. Um, and so regardless of which side is giving us that, I don't love it. The other principle- Almost, almost a sin now, repent later kind of thing. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, and, you know, in politics, I don't think, uh, you know, we obviously care a lot about politics and about the Constitution. I don't think it's necessarily as serious as I don't think it's as serious as making a mockery of the atonement by by playing games with your temple worthiness. Um, but it, but it struck me as similar to that kind of attitude. Um, the other principle at play here is when you're looking at the Constitution, a lot of people get this backwards. It's not that something has to be expressly prohibited by the constitution. And if it's not prohibited, then the government can do whatever is necessary and proper, whatever it wants. The constitution gives enumerated powers. And if it's not authorized, the government can't do it. Now you could talk about certain implicit powers and we will during this podcast, um, but the burden is on the government to establish that something is constitutional, not the other way around, not for someone else to prove that it's unconstitutional. So looking at this, you know, on the, the, issue by issue level as we're going through the constitution. For one thing, we also have to be guided by the understanding from uh, President Oaks recently, also uh, President Benson most notably, talking about how when we look at the constitution, we should be interpreting it as it was originally written, according to the tradition of the founding fathers, as President Benson said in 1972. Um, so there's a lot of case law that has maybe departed from the original uh, intent or the original meaning of the constitution. Um, but we're going to be looking at it through that framework because that's what the brethren have, have told us to do uh, with our divinely inspired constitution. So one thing that came to mind, especially in light of your um, President McKay quote and the, the thoughts you had about enforcing contracts versus forcing contracts is that there's actually a contracts clause in Article 1, Section 10 of the Constitution. Now, it does not apply to the federal government. It only applies to state governments, but it does give us kind of a guiding principle about how the government should be treating contracts. Um, and the contracts clause essentially says that the state governments are not allowed to jump in the middle of contracts and render them null and void to affect the terms of the contract, uh, which is what, you know, on a state level, states would be doing if they were extending eviction moratoriums like this, where they're essentially rendering, uh, you know, these landlord tenant contracts, these lease agreements, uh, meaningless between the landlord and the tenant. Uh, states can't do that. The federal government technically uh, is not restricted by the contracts clause, uh, but there, I think there is an important principle at play there. Well, I think it also goes back to what you said about in terms of interpretation, that the burden is on the government to prove, the federal government that is, to demonstrate that it has a power when it exercises it. And so a lack of express power for for the federal government to exercise the kind of power you just described is from an originalist perspective, an argument in favor of it not having that authority at all, as opposed to, well, it doesn't say we can't. 
kind of, of an attitude that sometimes is dominates uh, interpretations of the Constitution. One of the first things that I thought of when I read President Biden's quote and when I heard about this issue is the question of whether or not the federal government has any sort of authority over this issue at all. And, and that comes, and where, where do we get, where do we derive where the government, federal government has jurisdiction over something is in Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution, which is the enumerated powers that are granted to Congress. In Article 1, Section 1, it says that all legislative powers herein granted shall be vested in the Congress of the United States. And so then we have a list, though, of the scope of what Congress can do. And in Article 1, Section 8, Clause 3, we get what's called the Commerce Clause that says that the Congress shall have the power to regulate commerce with foreign nations among the several states and with the Indian tribes. And so from an originalist perspective, this means that Congress or the, the Commerce Clause, through the Commerce Clause, Congress can regulate or has scope over interstate commerce, meaning commerce that's going across state, state lines within the union, not intrastate or as commerce or, co or commerce transactions that are happening within your state. And so from that perspective of the original scope of the Commerce Clause, I think it's pretty clear that this kind of an action by the federal government per se is unconstitutional because this is an intrastate commerce, not interstate commerce. But that standard has been departed from, as you mentioned, by, by case law. And so during the New Deal era, the Supreme Court expanded the authority of Congress to, to regulate uh, commerce to include things that were intrastate, as long as you could show that there was a discernible impact on interstate commerce. But I, under, in my opinion, I'd be interested to hear what you think about this, Richie. I think that even if you take the broader interpretation that we have now, and it has been constricted since the New Deal era, but this broad, I think we could both agree, though, that this is still broader scope than was originally intended by the Commerce Clause. Even under that broader interpretation, this kind of, this kind of action by the federal government doesn't meet that criteria and would still fall outside of the broader scope version of the Commerce Clause. But I, I'd be interested to hear what you think about that. I, I agree and disagree with your interpretation of the some of this case law. The current status of case law, I agree, this would not pass constitutional muster uh, because of uh, the way that it was constricted, as you said, in 1995. But if we go back to the New Deal era, the the you know kind of infamous case on point here is called Wickard v. Ful v. Filburn. And it had to do with a man who was growing wheat in his backyard for his own consumption. He was not going to sell it to anyone. It was not crossing state lines. And yet the government found, the Supreme Court found that that uh, was within the jurisdiction of the federal government uh, under the Commerce Clause because it, in the aggregate, it had a substantial effect or substantial impact on interstate commerce. Um, and so there was kind of a, a thought for that from that point on for several decades uh, that there was very little that the government could not do when it came to the Commerce Clause. Fast forward to 1995, um, and there was a case called U.S. v. Lopez, and this one dealt with um, basically guns and how close you could carry a gun around schools. Um, and for the first time in generations, the Supreme Court struck down a law under the Commerce Clause 
saying that it was not an economic activity. Carrying a gun near a school has nothing to do with economics. Um, so there is a kind of an asterisk near Wickard v. Filburn, which is not totally overturned, but the activity that, it, that does have a substantial impact on interstate commerce has to be economic in nature. So nowadays, uh, you know, with the eviction moratorium, I think under a Wickard, a pure Wickard standard, it would be hard to argue against the government having that power. Um, again, this having nothing to do with the original interpretation of the Constitution. But because of that restriction from U.S. v. Lopez, I think that we can look at the eviction moratorium that on the one hand, one might argue reasonably, you know, we're looking at landlord tenant law. We're looking at contracts. These are economic type of things. The purpose behind the economic or the eviction moratorium is to prevent uh, tenants from being indigent and and all these sorts of things because people are suffering economically. So you could make that argument. However, coming from the CDC, which is where this moratorium is coming from, and expressly not from commerce as I uh, from Congress, as I think we're going to get into later. Um, the CDC is not empowered to make economic policy. The only policy that they're empowered to make has to do with preventing the spread of communicable diseases. Um, and so when there is a case where health is the primary motivating factor and not economics, then it won't stand under the Commerce Clause. Um, and so I think although that argument does exist that, you know, landlord tenant situations and evictions, that is economic in nature, because it's coming from the CDC, I think they're going to have a very hard time making that case. Yeah, the CDC expressly makes it it's a health issue, not an economic one. And I the commerce class, there's so much to talk about. We could even get into what the term regulate originally meant as well. It wasn't in terms of controlling or directing as much as ensuring that it functions properly as, as opposed to when we talk about regulations now um, under a current understanding. But I think we've covered the, the commerce clause enumerated powers argument, but there's also a separation of powers issue. So if you ignore or just decide to say, okay, maybe the federal government does have authority here. Then we get into the issue of, okay, which branch of the federal government has that authority? And as I shared earlier, Article 1, Section 1 says that all legislative powers here and granted shall be vested in a Congress. And when Congress doesn't grant the executive branch authority to act in a circumstance, when that executive branch acts anyway, that because it is a it is exercising legislative authority is in fact in effect it's legislating then when it makes rules that's not been granted to it power that's not been granted or authority that's been granted to it by congress and so i think you could make a strong case here that 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 even if we accept the idea that the, the fed that the federal government could be involved this coming from the cdc which is part of the administrative one of the executive branch, I almost said administrative branch, which you could say is a non-official branch, um, that violates the, the, the terms of separation of powers. Congress should, if, if anyone's going to do it, it should be Congress, not the CDC. And I, I guess that, that's the second one. What, what, what's your response to that one? Um, well, the, the most important case when we're talking about separation of powers to understand the modern uh, case law and understanding of how we would look at a, a situation like this it comes from a case called Youngstown v. Sawyer, uh, which came from, um, uh, I believe, the early 1950s. But it was a case involving Harry Truman um, and, and the steel industry. And basically, from that case, we get this tripartite scheme, as it's called, where we have these three, um, like these three zones, 
that we look to. And when the president's acting in or you know zone A or B or C, depending on which zone he's acting under, um, that uh, kind of determines how much authority or credibility he has behind his actions. Um, and by the president, I mean the entirety of the executive branch, which I guess would include also the administrative state or the, the executive agencies. Um, and so under that test, first, the first tier is, you know, the president is acting pursuant to express or implied authorization from Congress. And in that case, his authority is at its maximum. But then you have the second case or the second tier where the president acts in absence of either congressional grant or denial of authority. So here uh, the Supreme Court called it a zone of twilight. They may have concurrent authority. It's a little bit uncertain. We're not sure what the president has. And then in the final one, the third tier, when the president takes measures incompatible with the express or implied will of Congress, his power is at its lowest ebb. And the court can sustain his actions only by disabling the Congress from acting upon the subject. And I'll get into the, the first part of that, but that's, that final sentence is so key here because in order for the court to say that the eviction moratorium is, un is constitutional, in order for them to uphold the actions of the CDC, they effectively have to say that Congress could not operate or could not enact legislation regarding an eviction moratorium, that it could only be handled uh, by the executive branch and specifically the CDC. Um, and I really don't see them going that far, especially when in Justice Kavanaugh's opinion in the recent case, uh, the 5-4 vote where they did uphold the eviction moratorium expressly because it was only going to be in effect for another month. And President Biden at the time had said that he was not going to be extending it. Um, Kavanaugh, Justice Kavanaugh later said in that opinion that Congress would have to pass new and clearer legislation if they wanted to extend the moratorium past July 31st. Well, that came up for a vote and they declined to do so. Um, so I, I have a really hard time believing that the Supreme Court is going to take that power away from Congress when they expressly said just a minute ago uh, that only Congress would be able to extend the moratorium. Um, so here, since Congress has acted and Congress has said, no, we're not going to extend the moratorium, um, I think we fall pretty clearly in this third tier where the president uh, and his power are at its lowest ebb that he is in taking measures incompatible with the express or implied will of Congress. Um, so that's gonna be a really hard case to make, even though you know, this is kind of under a broader rubric of the implied executive emergency powers in Article Two. It's a quite expansive area of constitutional law. There's very little said about it in the constitution, uh, but because of some, some key words and a couple of thes in the right places, uh, there's a lot of, uh, there's, there's some strong belief and arguments that the president has a lot of implied powers, especially when it comes to emergencies, hence a lot of things that presidents have been able to do uh, under that umbrella. But here, because of Congress's actions, I, I don't see a, a great argument in Joe Biden's favor for the eviction moratorium. Yeah, no, that, that's great analysis. The one thing that I thought was interesting is that the Biden administration, part of their argument in extending the eviction moratorium is that they make a statutory claim that Congress had delegate, has delegated to the Department of Health and Human Services, which the CDC is a part of, the authority to take such measures as to prevent the spread of communicable, communicable disease as the CDC deems reasonably necessary. And they, they pull this from a tech part of the statute that, that creates the Department of Health and Human Services and, and creates its scope. 
And I'll, I'll read to you the list of powers that's given in this statute. It says that they have the power to, they, they can do inspection, fumigation, disinfection, sanitation, pest extermination, destruction of animals or articles found to be so infected or contaminated as to, as to be sources of dangerous infection to human beings and other measures as in his judgment may be necessary. And so that last line does other measures as in his judgment may be necessary is the basis that the CDC is saying that they have the statutory authority to make an eviction moratorium. And their argument was that if we evict a bunch of people, we're gonna spread COVID. And that, so that's, that's kind of the claim that they're making. And in a piece for National Review, Andrew, Andrew McCarthy, who's a former uh, US prose, uh, federal prosecutor, and he's a senior fellow at the National Review Institute, commenting on this argument, I thought he gave really good analysis that I wanted to share with you. He said, in empowering the CDC to employ measures it judges to be necessary, the law is, the law is talking about measures along the lines of fumigation or destruction of animals, and physical objects that may be the source of infectious disease. If that were not sufficiently clear from the statute, it is further elucidated by the regulation itself, section 70.02. Inconvenient though it is for the administration, the regulation does not say that the CDC is authorized to take measures it deems reasonably necessary. The sentence continues, including inspection, fumigation, disinfection, et cetera, et cetera. It is a canon of statutory construction known as ejusidem gener generis, that when a general term, such as anything deemed necessary, is coupled in context with specific enumerations, e.g. inspection, fumigation, disinfection, sanitation, the general term is understood to be within the same kind of class as the specific enumerations. So the idea that the fact that it says, as may, de be, as, as may be deemed necessary, as, or may be, de may be necessary, because it's coupled with specific things like fumigation, destroying animals or articles of clothing that can spread disease, the whatever is necessary has to be closely connected to those things that are listed. It can't be something that's way out of left field. And an eviction moratorium is nothing like the things that are listed in the statute that the CDC is given authority to do. And so even if we grant the first premise about federal authority, the, this, the argument that the CDC and the administration is making that they have statutory authority here, I think it is really weak. And I think uh, Andy McCarthy does a great job of pointing that out. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, Ejusdem is a really interesting doctrine, just for, for the sake of those who may not know. Canons of construction or canons of statutory construction are kind of a, uh, I, I think, more of an unwritten doctrine in statutory interpretation, statutory analysis that basically you have a series of doctrines that judges just tend to follow. These are uh, well-worn traditions established in, in common law and uh, applied over the years. Um, and you know sometimes people don't understand them on their face exactly what it might mean because someone could look at this law and say, well, it says anything deemed necessary, um, but, uh, but you do have to understand what the restrictions are um, you know, for instance, one one example that I shared with you prior to starting to record uh, was, you know, if I tell my babysitter, hey, my kids have been having a hard time going to bed lately. Just do whatever you can to make them happy. Give them a popsicle, sing them some songs, you know, maybe let them watch their show a little longer than normal. Um, even though I said anything to make them happy, that did not include taking them on a chartered flight to Hawaii. Um, technically, that falls within anything, 
but given the examples that I gave you, I think it, uh, it would be absurd on its face to think that I was including that broad of a rubric. Um, so that's essentially what Ajustum is, is getting at here. So when uh, the CDC is told that it can do anything deemed necessary, including essentially dealing with animals, um, that has nothing to do with eviction moratoriums. They've never been given any authority over housing. And if it wasn't clear enough, um, you know, as you mentioned, this is the authority that they're claiming, this, or the basis for their authority that they're claiming in, in doing the eviction moratorium, which just strengthens the argument that this is not an economic activity, um, because they're they're claiming that it is in order to prevent the spread of communicable diseases. Um, so if it's not an economic activity, then it can't stand under the, the Commerce Clause, or they can't use that Commerce Clause argument. Awesome. So I, I think those kind of round out. I don't know, are there any other constitutional points that you want to elucidate? No, I think we're good. I think we went through a lot of them and hopefully we didn't melt anyone's brains. It was a very con law <laughs> heavy day. Well, I, I just one final thing I want to discuss with you, Richie, then is obviously if you've been listening to this podcast, the conclusion that we've come to is that this is unconstitutional in a variety of different ways. Um, it violates the pillars in a variety of different ways as well. Uh, even if Biden goes through with his plan of you know, sending $45 billion to go pay landlords, that money is still taxpayer money, which would be a form of legal plunder, which is not part of the, the principle of limited government and violates rights, et cetera, et cetera. What should be done? I'm not saying what can be done. I'm saying what should the proper constitutional remedy to this kind of circumstance be. We have an executive, we have a president acting outside of his constitutional authority. Uh, we have at least one point already where the Supreme Court in the 5-4 decision that they said, had explicitly says that the, that the current existing statutory, that they exceeded existing statutory authority by issuing a national eviction moratorium. So we have the Supreme Court already saying that they see that this is, a, is unconstitutional. What then should be done to the administration for making this choice? Is this impeachable? I absolutely think it's impeachable. In fact, that was the first thing I was going to say. Um, I mean, you didn't ask what could be realistic, what could realistically be done. Um, I'm not uh, really sure what we could do there, given how much ground has already been given up. I mean, one thing that comes to mind is try to reduce the scope of the administrative state, um, you know, put these, put the, the onus for this policy directly on President Biden rather than, you know, letting him hide behind the CDC, which is what every president has been doing for the last many, many years. Um, any chance they get, they'll hide behind the, the administrative agencies. It's not just President Biden, um, but it really is uh, an unfortunate practice and beyond the scope of the constitution. Um, so maybe that could be done. But as far as impeachment goes, I mean, I I think that almost every president, aside from maybe a dozen, should have been impeached throughout our country's history. It's a drastically underutilized power. Um, and usually uh, my arguments for impeachment are harder to bring to fruition, given that, um, you know, it's something that the president signed into law when he expressly said it was not constitutional, something like George W. Bush with the McCain-Feingold Act, absolutely, I think he should have been impeached for saying it's not constitutional, but I'm going to sign it anyway. That's a clear betrayal of his his oath to uphold the Constitution. Um, 
But given that Congress would have to be the one to enact that impeachment to, to play that out, you're not going to see that when it was their own legislation that he signed into law. Here, it's a little bit different. I still don't think it's realistic. I don't think this is going to happen. But given that Congress tried to pass the eviction moratorium and decided not to, and then President Biden did it anyway, I think you, while saying, I know this is not constitutional, and I know the courts have said it's not constitutional, but we're going to do it anyway. That's absolutely, to me, impeachable conduct. Um, it's not in a million years going to happen. Uh, but the way that uh, people, the people generally handle these sorts of things is through elections. Hopefully, um, I, I am probably coming across a little bit cynical and pessimistic, but such is my nature. Um, I don't think a lot of the things that should be done will be done. Um, but hopefully at some point, people kind of open their eyes to the situation that on all sides and in all parties, the government has kind of gotten out of control. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I think this is impeachable. I would say it was impeachable for the previous president to do it too. And we can't hide behind partisan jerseys when it comes to the constitution as we were taught in this recent general conference constitutional principles come first over party loyalty over personality loyalty and the proper the proper remedy i think is a, as well would be impeachment in this in this circumstance um but the people unfortunately you know we don't have that we don't have that that's not going to happen i think you're absolutely right and so what you can do then as an individual if you want to address this issue is to get involved in politics, to, to vote, vote for representatives who will uphold the principles of the constitution and in future circumstances can hold presidents of both parties when they do these kinds of things accountable for their behavior. Well, I think this has been a really good discussion, Richie. I really appreciate you coming on and, and going through some heavy stuff with us. I think it's been a really good discussion. Um, if folks want to see some of your work, because I know you, you've done a lot of writing on, on constitutional issues, where can individual, where can people go to to read more from you and hear more of your thoughts on constitutional issues? Um, if you would like to um, hurt your brain a little bit, you can follow me on Twitter. Uh, my handle is at Rich K Angel, R-I-C-H-K-A-N-G-E-L. Um, you can also find uh, a blog that Jacob and I used to do together, thenewguards.net, thenewguards.net. Um, I have an article that I'm working on right now about how the word the in the first and second amendments is the most important word in either of those amendments. So, you know, that's the kind of uh, niche and probably boring content that you can look forward to reading my stuff. You can also go to the Federalist Society's website and Ooh, read yes. your work as well, because uh, Richie was a contributor for the Federalist Society on, there, uh, on some of it and does a lot of good analysis on constitutional legal issues there. Well, folks, thank you so much for joining us. We hope you've enjoyed this, this episode. Be sure to like and subscribe on whatever platform you listen to us on. If you're on YouTube, give us a like, hit the like button, subscribe, share with those you know, give it, leave us a five-star review on whatever platform you're on. We're on pretty much all of them. And we could also would love to hear from you if you have feedback or ideas or topics you'd like to see covered. You can reach out to us on all three of the major social media platforms, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Or you can email the show directly at latterdayfreeman76 at gmail.com. Well, for Richie, thank you so much for being with us, and we will see you next week.